Hey Life Canton, Roger here. So glad that you're joining us, whether you're a first-time listener or a returning listener. Welcome. If you are a returning listener, then you're in for a treat. We're doing another one of our recurring series that we do every year, so I'm sure you're going to be excited about that. If you're a brand new listener, though, be sure to head on over to our Church Center app or our webpage to fill out a Connect card. We believe that you belong to God, and therefore you belong to this community, and we want to help you get plugged into prayer, into life groups, into a life journey, even just into service opportunities and and getting to meet people around the church. So fill out a connect card so that we can help you do that. Either way, I want to remind you that God is always up to so much in our community, and you're going to hear a little bit of uh, Pastor Jared celebrate some of the ways that God has been faithful and that you all have been faithful to God in this season. So I would encourage you to take this opportunity to give, to give faithfully, uh, to continue to give faithfully to what God is doing at this church. You can do that via our Church Center app. But Either way, I hope you're excited. We're in our Cross Equals Love series. We do this every year before Easter. It's a really cool series, really powerful moments. And this year we're going to be talking about the image of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. So give this message a listen. Uh, it's from Pastor Jared, and I'll catch up with you in just a moment. See, Welcome. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am glad to be with you. If you are a little bit newer, we're especially excited that you are here, and we want to make sure that you get connected. And uh, if you missed the beginning when Pastor Nathan was up here, he said you can go to the QR code to fill out a Connect card. So that might show up on the screen here in just a little bit. You can fill that out, and uh, it'll help us be able to connect with you and help you take a next step in this church. I hope you are able to do that. I want to welcome anybody who might be listening later on in the podcast or watching this on Online. We're glad that you are joining us as well. Um, we are going to get into our series, which is Cross Equals Love. It's a new old series. That makes sense to the people who've been around for a while. We've done this series around this time of year uh, every year for the last, the last couple of years, um, but it might be new to you if you are newer here. So we're going to talk more about that in just a second, but I want to take a moment to acknowledge some updates, some things that are happening here. Um, we are in a season of transition, and uh, what has happened is our, our lead pastor, Nathan, is uh, leaving his position as lead pastor, and uh, I'm currently operating in the role of interim lead pastor, and so we're just in that season of transition, and in the midst of it, what I want to make sure to do is anytime I preach, uh, that I maybe just give a couple updates from time to time so that we're increasing the level of communication and making sure that you're all aware of what is happening, because change can be unsettling at times, and so we don't want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, a couple of those things that I want to mention is Nathan's last time with us will be uh, on March 26. He will be preaching, and that'll be his last day on campus. And then beyond that, he'll be sort of functioning in more of a consulting role. But the reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to mark your calendars for March 26th. It's a Sunday. And I want you to make it a priority to be here. And uh, we have a a great opportunity in transition to have people leave well. And so we want to honor Nathan. We want to thank him and celebrate him and his family for all of the work that he has been a part of in his time here. And so we get an opportunity to do that on March 26th. After each service, uh, we're going to have a little time of uh, reception and uh, some refreshments and stuff like that. So you could stick around. You're able to be able to say goodbye to Nathan, say, uh, express your gratitude and if you want to do that with a gift or something, you certainly can. There's, not, there's no pressure to, but you're certainly welcome to. So I want to encourage you to do that as well. Uh, but first, before I go any further, uh, could we just collectively just thank Nathan for the work that he's been a part of as well. Um, 
I also, in the spirit of continued communication, uh, part of the thing that we've been talking about for the last couple months is just some of the challenges with our budget. And so we want to make sure that that uh, communication is continuing to uh, increase as well as to be transparent as well. So I, I just want to give you an update on where we are at with the budget as well. A budget was passed. And so uh, what we need, what we need at this time of year from January to February is our year-to-date need is a number that's going to show up here, 123000 That's what we typically need at this time in the year, at the end of February. Where we are currently at is actually above that. Uh, we're at 143500 So that's, that's really good news. Um, and then I just want to show uh, the, the next number, what our six-month total need is 400000 So that's to the end of June. And then what we have decided, our partners have voted on, is that we're going to be shifting our fiscal budget year uh, to July then back to June instead of going from January to December. There's a reason for that. If you have questions about that, you can let me know or let our leadership team members know, but I'm happy to share more about that. So what that means, though, is from January to June, we have a six-month budget, and that's what that budget is at. So I just want to say thank you. Way to go. Good job. Um, You're doing great. Yeah, we can clap for that. Um, And we want to continue to to move forward. Now, uh, can you bring that up just one more time, please? Thank you very much. So you'll notice the discrepancy is about 20,000, 20,500. There's um, there's actually a a very generous partner who is in our church who decided to give a one-time gift of $20,000, which is why that puts us in a slightly different space. Now, we don't plan for that. We don't necessarily prepare for that. We more so prepare for this number. And, but I don't want that to be a, a means to say, oh, well, we can chill now. We can step back. No, I want you to continue uh, to keep your foot on the pedal, if, if I could use that metaphor, and continue to be generous and, and move us forward so that we can get to this number at the end of June as well. So I just wanted to give you that update. Again, if you have any questions, you can let me know, uh, or I might defer you to our financial officer or our treasurer if you have some more details detailed questions that I might not necessarily be equipped to answer. Um, I want to take a moment just to stop before we continue on in our series and just pray and thank God for what he's doing, but also just ask him to continue to to bless us um, in this church, but also just care for some of those families who are still without power. Would you pray with me, please? God, we trust you as provider. And sometimes in seasons of change and transition, uh, we get a little nervous, we get a little anxious, um, but we look to you, and one of the names that we call you is Jehovah Jireh. You are a provider. And so, God, we acknowledge who you are. That's your character. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. And so we ask for more of who you are to be revealed to us and for us to continue to grow in trust. God, we thank you for the work that you have done in and through Nathan and his family. And we uh, pray that we would do well to honor him, to thank him, to celebrate him and his family as they transition, as they continue to figure out what God has for them next. And then, God, we do pray for those um, in our community who are continuing to be without power, without internet, and all of the things that uh, make life just a little bit easier. God, um, would you care for them? And if there's something that we need to do as a family to, to care for them, would you reveal that to us? God, we pray now as we uh, speak about matters of the cross, matters of your love for us, that you would give us new eyes to see. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are 
starting a series called Cross Equals Love. It's on my shirt. It's on some other people's shirts. You may have seen that around. And every time we do this series, I always am uh, provoked with the question of, does it? Does the cross equal love? And, and maybe we have different perspectives on that, especially if you're newer to the church or if you've been burned by the church, you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. <laughs> That's not been my experience. I don't think the cross equals love or at least the way that Christians have shown themselves to be. We could go back in moments in history and we could talk about how the cross has been mishandled, misused. Uh, I think of images of in my textbooks that I saw growing up and documentaries that I saw about the KKK burning crosses on lawns of people of color as a torture device. How does the cross equal love in that scenario? Or I think about January 6th, just a couple of years ago, more recent event of something where people are erecting a cross on the lawn of a Capitol building, of a government building, of a government lawn, uh, but then you look closer and you see this group of people is a group called Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys who are a racist group, self-proclaimed, uh, and they are using a cross that's supposed to equal love to do whatever they're choosing to do. And so again, if these are the majority images in our mind's eye when we talk about the cross and we talk about things like Christian nationalism, does the cross actually equal love? What image are we presenting out in the community when it comes to the cross and when it comes to our definitions of love? And I got a question, do we even know what Jesus looks like? Let me ask you that question. How do you view Jesus? How do you view him physically, maybe emotionally? How would he behave? Like what are his, uh, what's his body language when you imagine Jesus, if you do imagine Jesus? What does he sound like? What's his voice like? And maybe we all have different ideas of what that's like or what images get conjured up. And the question we have to ask ourselves as well is, if Jesus were to show up in 2023 in Canton, Michigan, would we even recognize him? See, this isn't a question just for us, modern people. This was a question for the ancient people, especially at the time of the New Testament, when people were wondering, what is the Son of God? What is the Messiah, the one who's come to save? What is he supposed to look like? What's he supposed to act like, be like? And the reason they're having that question is because they have prophetic texts in their culture, in the Hebrew culture, that happened hundreds of years before Jesus even shows up on the scene, asking that question, what will he be like? What will God be like when God shows up? in a new way. We're going to be looking at that prophetic text here in just a second, and actually for the duration of this series, Cross Equals Love. We're going to be in Isaiah 53 for a majority of it. Today, I'm going to talk about just the first verse of Isaiah 53, uh, but also a couple verses right before that, because it gives us some context as well. So what I want to do is, I actually just want to read it for you. I don't want you to pay attention to the screen or look at it in your own text, but then we'll chunk it out together and, and unpack that just a little bit more, okay? So just listen with me as I read. Isaiah 53, sorry, 52, verses 13 to 15, and then 53 to 1. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. He will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not, been, what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Just a couple of reflections as I look at this passage. Uh, for me, 
I, get, I tend to get a little bit nerdy about words when I'm looking at the Bible and I want to ask certain questions. Maybe you don't notice this, but for me, I noticed a couple different tenses, like future tense and past tense. The, there's the verses like, my servant will prosper and he will startle many nations. But then in between there, it says, but many were amazed when they saw him, his face was so disfigured. So I'm like, wait, is this a, is this a future event that's about to happen or is this a past tense event that has already happened? And so I get confused about the language. What we need to understand, especially as we approach texts like this in the Old Testament is that this is written by people who are not like us. This is written by ancient people in the Middle East with a different kind of language. What the Hebrew people do is they don't write with tenses in mind as much, with future tense or past tense. And so we don't necessarily need to focus on that, but what we do need to focus on is that collectively Jews believe this to be a prophetic text. So in other words, it's a future event, a future thing that's going to happen, a future figure as it were. But what's interesting is that within the Jewish community, there's not consensus on who or what this figure even represents. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, we're like, well, duh, it's obvious. This is clearly pointing to Jesus. And we tend to bring that sort of arrogance to the text sometimes, but I would caution us to bring a sense of reverence, a sense of caution, a sense of awe to a prophetic text. Now, spoiler alert, we do believe that this does point to a future event when Jesus will have been crucified, if that makes sense. But we approach it with caution and with awe. Because I don't know about you, but we're not always all that schooled in reading ancient Middle Eastern literature, okay? Maybe you are, and I just don't know. The reason we bring a sense of caution, a sense of awe to it is because of the ways that the cross and our definitions of love and even our images of Jesus have been completely distorted. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back through this with a sense of reverence, a sense of caution, a sense of awe to make sure that what we're reading is actually what it's trying to present us. Okay, so let's look at that first verse, chapter 52, verse 13. It says, see my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. Now the words that tend to stick out to me are prosper. Yeah, we like prosperity, highly exalted, lifted up all things we love, right? We love to be in a position of power. We love to be in charge. We love to be in control. And that's what we think God is like too. Absolutely. This is what God is like. He's a king. He's on a throne. Even Pastor John talked last week about Jesus being compared to the lion of Judah. Yeah, I want a lion to come through and thrash all of the things and all of the people that I don't like and just tear them apart limb from limb, even though Jesus says, love your enemies, but we don't need to talk about that. We like power, prosperity, positions of being up above, but immediately we're faced with a bit of a contradiction here. My servant will prosper. Oh, I don't like that. That's no fun. A servant is a subservient position. It's a lowly position. But even so, we might be like, well, yeah, it's a lowly position, but that will be prosperous. That will be exalted. And so we immediately need to go to victory in our Western American mindsets. That's, that's where we tend to go. So what do we do with that? Immediately we're faced with this contradiction. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted to a throne, but it's a throne that doesn't look like Game of Thrones. It's a throne that looks like a cross that's filled with suffering and pain 
He will prosper. He will be in power. But his version of prosperity and power are much more compared to a lamb that was slain than the lion of Judah. You can read about that in Revelation. It mentions lion of Judah one time. And then the rest of the time, like 26 times, it mentions the lamb who was slain. What image do we want Jesus to be most of the time? Let's look at verse 14. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. From his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Is this what you think of when you picture, when you view Jesus, a disfigured person who doesn't even look like a man? Think about human attraction. There's this stat out there that we are naturally, as humans, not just in America, but worldwide, we are naturally attracted to symmetry. You know what symmetry is? Is Everything is perfectly aligned. So uh, the eyes are perfectly measured straight across. The nose is straight. The smile is straight. Uh, I would not be an example of someone with symmetry, okay? If you were to do a zoom in on my nose, it's all crooked because I got hit with a basketball in the face so many times when I was a kid, okay? Let's not talk about my basketball skills. Let's focus on the text. Disfigured. Symmetry. I I don't have symmetry. Most of us don't have symmetry. In fact, only 2% of the population in the world has symmetrical faces. Which is interesting because we are mostly, universally, attracted to those with symmetry in their faces. Why is that? Why are we so attracted to something that is so rare, something that is so elusive? And if a majority of the population is attracted to symmetry then our expectations of beauty then get projected onto God when we start to talk about spiritual formation. And we expect Jesus, we expect the things of God to also be beautiful and attractive and things that we are drawn into and yet we're faced with a face that is so disfigured he couldn't even be recognized. Again, what is your view of Jesus? How do you view Jesus? Have you seen Jesus art before? It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Like Jesus art is ridiculous because Jesus is this beautiful white man with permed blonde hair and blue eyes. Like he is a very attractive man. And I'm not saying in a romantic sense. I mean, just like he's a good looking dude, right? And his beard is perfectly formed. I mean, like no gray hairs whatsoever because he was, you know, he's 33 when he died. So maybe he didn't have a chance to get gray. I don't know what it is. But like even some images show him as a toned bodybuilder. Like the dude is ripped. Look at this image. This is my Jesus. He is power. Look at those lats. In this scene here, Jesus is saying, do you even lift, bro? Like lift up the cross. So there's a spiritual, no, anyway. I like that. I mean, that's what I normally look like. I'm not going to show you right now, but like that's, that's the kind of Jesus. There's one cut here with a little bit of blood. That's it. That, I have a couple here, you know, but no, no problem. He's been on his protein shakes. He is doing just fine. Here's the thing. Our art, our depictions of Jesus actually form our theology more than we even realize. Because what it does is it constructs this view of Jesus that we want it to be. That he's attractive, that he's strong, that he can break the cross even though he submitted himself to death on a cross. Submitted himself. The fact that he didn't do this is the reason why you and I are saved and can receive forgiveness in the first place. We have to reconstruct our images of Jesus. Otherwise, 
we run into problems of expecting Jesus to be somebody he's never meant to be. And then we create these false insecurities in ourselves that we are broken and we're supposed to look like this attractive Jesus, not just in our looks, but in our behavior, in the way that we think. And then we fall deeper and deeper into shame when we don't live up to this expectation. Our art has actually formed our theology of Jesus more than we even realize. And it is an art that is removed of suffering, that is removed of pain. So we don't expect to experience suffering and pain in our faith. Why would we? When Jesus looks super attractive and happy and healthy all the time. I uh, went to college as an art major and then I dropped out because <laughs> uh, that was not going to be the path for me. And um, I decided to get into ministry, but then I wondered like, well, why, why was I ever passionate about art? Am I ever going to use that, you know, talent again? And so when I started getting into ministry, there was an opportunity to start like painting and I painted an image of Jesus on the cross. And um, it was really fun for me. It was actually really healing for me. And, uh, and then there was uh, somebody in the audience who saw me do that. And he came up to me and he's like, Hey, can I commission you to do one of those for me? Like, sure, that'd be awesome. So he wanted this four foot by eight foot canvas of Jesus on the cross. And so here's what I painted. Uh, Not this one, but this one. Um, And I was about finished and I invited him over. I would say, hey, why don't you come take a look at it? You know, see what you think. The paint hasn't fully dried yet. Just just let me know what you think. And and there's still time if I need to make some adjustments or whatever, I can do that. She comes over and he kind of stands back and he looks at it. Is that saying anything? thinking, does he like it? This is not what he was hoping for because he saw me do the other one. And then he says, it's kind of bloody. Yeah. He goes, what's, it's a little morbid. I'm thinking, yeah. And in my head, I'm thinking, but I didn't say out loud. I'm like, what did you think the crucifixion was? I don't think it was just a slap on the wrist. Like there was more to it than that. He said, no, no, I I understand what it's supposed to be and and I I get all of that, but I'm going to be hanging this up in my living room and like if I have guests over and they look at, you know, whoa, it's all that blood, like that's going to be kind of uncomfortable. So can you you switch it up a little bit? Can you change it up a little bit? And at the time, I'm like, well, I'm not going to fight this guy on theology and art, so uh, he's paying me, so I'll I'll just go go ahead and adjust it. So I adjusted it, and the next image looked like this. I grabbed some white paint, some black paint, I kind of mixed it together. I kind of really smudged out all of the red. And this is what it ended up being. As I think back on that experience, I think about how I minimized the power of the cross how I literally whitewash it. I whitewash the pain, the suffering. I just remove it. It's just, you know, a few cuts and bruises along the way. That that's, that's really all that took place on the crucifixion, on the cross. And it, that's, that's what needed to happen. And this is just a little artistic thing, but I think about what we do with this in our minds, in our hearts, how much we minimize the power of the cross. And we, we whitewash it, because we also whitewash our sin and our brokenness. And we say, well, it's, it's not that bad. It's not that big of an issue. We talk about our individual sin, our, our behaviors, and, and think, well, it's, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. Or we think about the brokenness that we might be feeling inside, maybe some of the struggle that we have, the inner turmoil that we have, and we try to whitewash it by saying, well, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. 
And we never actually really talk about it. And yet we deal with this inner turmoil of what we're going through, this pain and suffering. And the problem with that is we never actually address it and we never actually view Jesus for who he's supposed to be, who he's meant to be. And we don't see the power of the cross. And not only that, but here in our culture, we have a very individualistic mindset. It's all about just me individually, me and God. And so when we think about our sin, well, if I don't deal with that issue personally, well, then it's a non-issue, so I don't really need to talk about it, or I don't really need to hear a pastor talk about it. We're not really all that important. Or if it's brokenness, inner turmoil, somebody's hurting, well, I'm not hurting. I understand that they're hurting, but I'm removed from them, so I don't really need to deal with what they're hurting with. I don't need to mourn with them or weep with them because it's not my issue and we treat sin, we treat brokenness as this individualistic perspective because that's what our culture has taught us to do as opposed to what it actually is, which is way more communal, way more collective, way more systemic than we give it credit for. I used to work at a church that uh, had sort of a Lutheran uh, denominational heritage to it. And some of you grew up maybe in Lutheran churches and Catholic churches, and there's this thing that we often did called the liturgy. Liturgy is just a fancy word for work of the people. It's a way to respond back to God. And what, part of the, the liturgy and the confession was, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. It's a good line. Uh, it's a powerful one. It's maybe kind of a depressing one, maybe a morbid one uh, for those. Uh, who think through that process. And after we did that a couple times, there was this person in my last church who would come up to me from time to time and said, Jared, I don't like that we say that line. Tell me more. I don't, I don't want to say that in, anymore. I don't believe that. I don't believe we are in bondage to sin. I'm not in bondage to sin. I prayed a prayer. So I'm free from the penalty of sin. I'm free in Christ. And so I don't have to deal with that sin anymore. I'm justified through my faith. And I'm like, yeah, th- that is partially true. You individually are justified. But again, there's a problem with only seeing sin and brokenness in our relationship with Jesus as an individualistic endeavor. How many times do I not think about the things that I might be participating in that are much more communal, that are much more collective, that are much more systemic? Yes, I might not deal with greed or pride or lust, but do I think about the clothes that I wear and where they were made and who made them? I could talk all day about how we should be anti-human trafficking, but are there children making my clothes? And am I okay with that? Well, that's, well you, you, can't, you can't go far with it. You can't do all of that. Or how about the, all of the ways that I contribute to ecological disaster and environmental disasters, but I just keep quiet because I've built a system that I've now been dependent upon. Do we talk about that? Are we okay to talk about that? Am I allowed to talk about that? Uh, that's more political. That's not theological. And so we whitewash it. No, I'm not, I'm not in bondage to sin. Yeah, we absolutely are. We collectively are in bondage to sin. We are trapped inside a system. I don't mean to talk about clothes or environment to make you feel more anxiety and to make you feel more despair. What I, the reason I talk about this idea and the, how it connects to being in bondage to sin is to talk about the gravity and the weight of our sin and of our pain and of our suffering. Otherwise, it didn't require a great love for us. We need a great love associated with great sacrifice. And so, yes, we do confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves, but there's a turn in that liturgy. 
Some of you know it. Confess that we are in bondage to sin. We are trapped in sin. We cannot free ourselves, but for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen? Amen. See, but if you grew up in a Lutheran church or a Catholic church, you just said it every single day and it just became rote and you just became bored and you fell asleep and you're just like, just give me the wafer and the juice and let's just be done. And it lost its meaning. I actually love the line of that liturgy because it forms and reforms my understanding of who Jesus is and it reforms my understanding of the cross, which then has to reform my understanding of how the cross actually is equal to love. His face was so disfigured. We didn't even recognize him. Do we recognize Jesus? Because this is startling. And that's what the next verse talks about. Isaiah says this, he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. We could say that this points to a couple different activities. That word nations there is other ethnicities, Gentiles, non-Jews, and their responses to this disfigured person, Savior, Messiah. How will they respond? We can look at one event toward the crucifixion, this moment when Jesus is on trial with Pilate, a non-Jew, a Roman governor, a person in power and leadership. And now Jesus is confronting Pilate Pilate's confronting Jesus and they're interacting with each other. And Jesus begins to talk about kings and kingdoms in a very different way that Pilate is not used to because his concept of kings and kingdoms and power is what Caesar has done, what the Roman Empire has done. And here Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of power, a different kind of prosperity, a different kind of kingship. Pilate says, so so you are a king. You recognize that you are a king. But there's this confusion. Pilate doesn't get it. Doesn't understand. Like, hey, they're not actually accusing you of anything that's worthwhile. Like, you could change all of this. If you truly are a king, you could change this. Pilate doesn't get it. And so he goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross. And then later on, an apostle named Paul a church planter, speaking to the Corinthian church who is saturated in the Roman Empire in this worldly way of thinking about kings and kingdoms. And Paul says the cross is foolishness to Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. They don't get it. Nobody gets it. Which is why Isaiah brings up this question. This is going to be confusing. And he says, who has believed our message? Who can believe this? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Who's actually going to get on board with this person who's come to save, whose power and prosperity looks different, looks more like a servant, looks like somebody whose face is disfigured, who's not in any kind of power in any way, shape, or form? Who's going to believe it? Are we going to believe it? Even that phrase, powerful arm, it's an arm with a nail in it attached to a cross. But then he's inviting you to pick up that same cross, to show love, 
How do you view Jesus? How do you view the work of the cross? How do you understand your definition of love as it relates to Jesus, as it relates to the cross? And do you want to be associated with that? Or do we prefer a more powerful, victorious Jesus in a worldly sense of what victory is? Victory looks like submission, looks like sacrifice, according to Jesus. Do you want to be associated with that? When I was in high school, um, I was a senior in high school and went to prom. Anybody have prom, go to prom? Some people boycott prom because that's like for the cool kids and we're going to go do our own thing. I grew up in a small farming community. Prom was a very, very big deal. Everybody showed up. The whole town showed up to the high school theater and they did this like grand march and then they announced the prom king and queen and then all the families left and then we went on to our dance and then the after party and the whole thing. Uh, Well, we were at the point where uh, me and my date, we were doing the Grand March. We kind of walk on stage and everybody claps and, oh, you look very nice, good. Okay, and then move on. And then they were about to announce the prom king and queen. So I was like, ah, let's just go to our dance um, and and do all of that. And so uh, everybody's there. The the newspaper photographer is there because oftentimes uh, the pictures of the prom king and queen and other, other notable people, maybe more popular people, got their images projected all over the newspaper for that next, that next week. So I'm like, I don't really want any part of that. Let's just go get, uh, start dancing early, I guess. And so there, I'm walking out, and I hear over the loudspeaker, and your prom king 2001 is Jared Van Voorst. <laughs> I'm waiting to see what your response is, because you're like, I don't know. Here's the thing. I am not prom king material, okay? I'm not like the popular kid or the athletic kid. That's just not my thing. I want to show you a picture of what I look like and uh, hold your applause and your laughter and all of that. Uh, This is me. That's when I had hair on top and not on the bottom. And then um, this is my girlfriend at the time who later became my wife. Uh, So so that's good. So I got, why do you clap for her and not for me? No, that's whatever. I'll take it as a compliment. So that's me. And they gave me this medal to put around my neck. And then they announced the prom queen. She comes down, she gets a little tiara. And we're now taking tons and tons of pictures with the the newspaper photographer. And then the weirdest thing happened. All of the guys that I would have considered popular, athletic, well-liked, all of a sudden said, hey, Jared, we want to take a picture with you too. They started huddling around me and were like sitting on the edge of the stage. They've got me in the center and they're all surrounding me. These are all people that like I didn't hang out with at all throughout high school. And now they want to be associated with me. Why? I don't know. But then I realized, oh, they want their picture in the newspaper so that the whole town can see. And everybody else in the town would have probably seen seen like, oh, these guys are all bros together. Oh, they're all friends with the prom king. Super cool. That wasn't the story at all. Because after that date, they didn't call to hang out. I didn't have cell phones, so like the rotary phone, it's a whole thing. We'll talk about it later. We didn't hang out after that. Why'd they want to be associated with me in that moment? Because it benefited them? Because I was a means to an end for them? How often do we do this with Jesus? Do we find out that he's actually the king that we weren't necessarily expecting, that we weren't necessarily even wanting? But then we, we want to be associated with him if it's convenient for us. Well, I'll pray a prayer and accept him in my heart so I can go to heaven someday when I die. Like that's what we've reduced our faith to. 
And so hopefully, you know, along the way, maybe don't watch a rated R movie, maybe don't do drugs, maybe don't have sex before marriage, all of that stuff. Like that is what our faith is. Exciting. That really changes lives, right? So we're associating with Jesus as long as it's convenient for us, as long as it's a means to an end. But the kind of king that actually comes, a suffering servant who dies at the hands of the violent Romans, who submits himself to death on a cross through pain and suffering and self-sacrifice, do we want to be associated with that Jesus too? Because that's the one we get. Do we want to be associated with a different kind of power, a different kind of prosperity, a servant who's obedient to death. That's why Isaiah asks this question, who's going to believe this? Because this is not what everybody else is expecting it to be. Later on in the New Testament, John answers that question. This is why belief is so crucial. In John chapter one, he says this, He, Jesus, came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Do you believe? Do you accept this version of Jesus? Are you a child of God? Not because you prayed a prayer someday, but because you actually want to be associated daily with this Jesus, associated with him, communing with him, even in his suffering. See, Paul says, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Yes, we love that part. The very next sentence, and I want to join in with him in his suffering. Nah, not really. That doesn't sound like fun. How much do we daily want to associate with Jesus? With the Jesus of the scriptures, not some Jesus we construct in our whitewashed art. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to continue to reframe, to revision, to reform our views of Jesus. Be constantly refining your view of Jesus. What might that look like? What images did I ask you before about that you had that maybe don't necessarily jive with the one that was just described? Keep refining your view of Jesus. How do we do that? This is done in community. Yes, it's done in self-reflection and continuing to read the scriptures continuing to ask reflective questions about the art that we see, how we see the cross being displayed out in our world, in the media, in government, and ask, is that the cross? Is that what it's supposed to be? Does that actually propel people to more love, to sacrificial love? Do this on your own, but also do it in community. Do it in small groups. If you're not part of a small group, get in a small group where you are constantly discussing, what is my view of Jesus? How do I actually understand him? And is it compelling me toward sacrificial love? Does it make room for pain and suffering as well? And then secondly, how do we help form an environment for our young people? We help them 
to form an authentic view of Jesus. Because the numbers are pretty staggering that young people just continue to leave the church in droves because they look at this symbol, the cross equals love, and they say, I don't think so. Not in my experience. What cross and what definition of love do we want to present to our community and to the world? And it starts with how we form our environments for young people. I was talking this last week with our Life Kids director, Jaden, and talking about how things are going, what, what she needs help with. And she said, you know what? It's the same old conversation. We just don't always have enough volunteers. So I'm, I'm running around trying to get from room to room, trying to help out, trying to make sure that the kids have help that they need. Sometimes just trying to make sure that they get to the bathroom safely. And we're both like, yeah, we're just, we're sick of having this conversation. And she's like, but that's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't want people to just sign up to fill a spot. I don't want just anybody with a pulse to come and be part of our kids. I genuinely want people who actually care about the kids and create an environment where they too can encounter Jesus in the same way that all the adults get to in the auditorium. She deeply cares about our students, our young people, experiencing an authentic faith in Jesus, not just wiping noses, not just helping them get to the bathroom, but actually creating an environment where they too can encounter Jesus. So we can complain all we want about, oh, the young people are leaving the church in droves. They're all going away. They don't understand Jesus. Well, that's on us. Are we going to help? The reason Nathan asked us to consider helping in life kids was not to fill a spot, but to create an environment where our kids can encounter an authentic Jesus. So I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Anytime that I'm not preaching or hosting, I'm going to go serve in there too. This isn't just for, well, you have special gifts, so you get a different place on the stage. Nope, it's not what it's about. You want to be a servant? Do the thing that might be uncomfortable. Do the thing that you might not be used to. But for the sake of increasing opportunity for belief in a Jesus who genuinely loves us, who is all about self-sacrifice. I want to invite you to stand if you're able. Some of you, I recognize, maybe church is newer for you. Maybe this image of Jesus isn't one that you've always been presented with if you did grow up in a church. And I'm going to ask what Isaiah asks. I'm going to ask what John asks. Will you believe this? Because if you do, you are called child of God. You get to reclaim your identity in Jesus, not in anything else. You get to let Jesus describe who you are. You can do that by joining me, praying, praying whatever I pray, or you can pray something in your own words. Would you pray with me? God, I just feel compelled to repeat that phrase. Confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. For the sake of your son, Jesus, have mercy on us. God, if anybody prays that in this room right now, listening online, 
God, I pray that they would step out in faith and begin the journey of belief. God, that you would begin to refine their view of you, but also transform their hearts so that they can experience your mercy, your leading, your love. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that message uh, as Pastor Jared challenged us to rethink our views and our picture of Jesus and who he is, what he has done, and what he means to us. I hope that you have a moment this week where you encounter Jesus in a new way. Uh, but if you need anything, uh, even just prayer, please reach out to us. Uh, we want to pray for you and, again, connect to you. So fill that out on the Connect card. Let us know. We'd love to support you. Uh, I hope you have a blessed week. And I hope that this week you see Jesus in a fresh new way. Have, have a blessed week. We'll see you again real soon.